All right, hello, I am Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your perpetual Twilight speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The Beginning Place by Ursula K. Le Guin, which was originally published in 1980. I first read Le Guin 20 years ago when I was in the army. That's going to be a real through line in this podcast. I read The Dispossessed when I was just binging as much science fiction as I could get my hands on, uh, but not really diving deep into single authors, but trying to get some real breadth in the, the genre. And so I never went back to her after I read that book, but we recently covered her story, Winter's King, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, and as soon as I realized that that story takes place in the same world as her masterpiece novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, I went and read that first in order to prepare for that episode, and I have to say, I absolutely loved that book, and so I was very excited to read this one, and I am excited to keep reading everything that Le Guin ever wrote. This is a pretty short book. It clocks in at only about 200 pages. But nonetheless, I think this is going to be a longer than usual review. So take a deep breath and get ready for The Beginning Place. The Beginning Place is a crossover story, which is to say that the story begins in our world and our principal characters are from our world, the real world. There are people like us, but they are going to cross over into another world, a, a fantasy world, a speculative fiction world. Before we get to that world and the adventures to be had there, we need to meet our characters. And The Beginning Place is principally a character study. Its richness and its beauty lies in exploring these characters, these very mundane characters, more than in exploring the fantasy world that Le Guin creates for them. In our first chapter, we meet Hugh Rogers, 20 years old, lives with his mother on the outskirts of a small American city, and works as a cashier at a grocery store. But this is not the life that Hugh wants. He dreams of going to college and of becoming a librarian, but that's just not possible for him because his mother is opposed to it. And we very quickly learn that although at first glance, Hugh seems like a case of failure to launch, the reality is that he is stuck in place because his mother won't let go of him. She's emotionally dependent on him. Hugh's father left her when Hugh was just a child, and, and she's never recovered from that abandonment, and she needs Hugh with her to feel safe and, and, and secure in some way, and it's a creepy and intense need. She demands that Hugh be at home at night, which is why he can't go to night school and become a librarian, and she criticizes any attempt he makes to be independent or even to, to have an identity through a hobby or friends. Hugh's mother's a heartbreaking character. She deserves our pity, I think, and she needs she needs something in her life. She has moved herself and Hugh around a lot, sometimes several times in a, a single year as she transfers jobs within the banking corporation that she works for, and this constant displacement has clearly taken a toll on Hugh, who perhaps doesn't even know how to make friends. It, it seems that his only friends are, are books, and that's why he wants to be a librarian. But this is a clear indication that Hugh's mother is afraid of stopping, of, of having to pause and, and confront herself, confront her, her loneliness and the abandonment that she feels. But as they've been in this community for a little while, Hugh's mother's actually begun to make friends her, for herself, and she's spending more and more time getting into spiritualism with some of her co-workers. And uh, she's going to seances, she's uh, investigating her past life as an Egyptian priestess. Uh, in short, she's found a new way to escape her reality, which is going to be the, the theme of this book. 
Hugh, as well as yearning for an escape, he daydreams a lot about becoming a librarian, but but also about buying a car. He doesn't really need the money that he makes at the grocery store, and while he also doesn't need a car either because he walks to work, he daydreams about the ability to drive around wherever he wants and even to live downtown and drive to work. And, you know, these fantasies are nonspecific. They aren't about getting a car or getting a new job. They're about freedom. They're about escape. One night, Hugh's mother goes out to one of her seances, and she leaves Hugh home alone to cook a frozen dinner and, and just be in their home without any particular purpose. And this is finally too much for Hugh. He has a, a panic attack, and he runs out of the house. And as with any Le Guin book, there is tremendous pleasure in the beauty of her prose. And so I just want to read this passage about Hugh's panic attack, which is the real inciting incident of the story. He got up again suddenly, dropping the bag of peanuts he had just opened. It was too much, the elephant feeding itself peanuts. He could feel his mouth hanging open, because he could not seem to get air into his lungs. His throat was closed off by something in it trying to get out. He stood there beside the armchair, his body trembling in a jerky way, and the thing in his throat came out in words. I can't, I can't, it said loudly. Very frightened, in panic, he made for the front door, wrenched it open, got out of the house before the thing could go on talking. The hot, late sunlight glared on white rocks, carports, cars, walls, swings, television aerials. He stood there trembling, his jaw working. The thing was trying to force his jaw open and speak again. He broke and ran. Right down Oak Valley Road, left onto Pineview Place, right again. He did not know, he could not read the signs. He did not run often or easily. His feet hit the ground hard in heavy shocks. Cars, carports, houses blurred to a bright, pounding blindness, which, as he ran on, reddened and darkened. Words behind his eyes said, You are running out of daylight. Air came acid into his throat and lungs, burning. His breath made the noise of tearing paper. The darkness thickened like blood. The jolt of his gait grew harder, yet he was running down, downhill. He tried to hold back, to slow down, feeling the world slide and crumble under his feet. A multiple lithe touch brush across his face. He saw or smelled leaves, dark leaves, branches, dirt, earth, leaf mold, and through the hammer of his heart and breath heard a loud, continual music. He took a few shaky, shuffling steps, went forward onto hands and knees, and then down, belly down, full length on earth and rock at the edge of running water. I love this description of a panic attack, of the, the need to, to run away, or really even just to, to run, the inability to read, the jumbling up of Hugh's senses. It's masterful writing here. And when Hugh gets up from the edge of this stream, it, it feels like waking up. He is in a beautiful place, a, a quiet place that feels good and free. He spends some time here before calming down and returning home, and he's quite worried that his mother will have gotten home before him, but she hasn't, and in fact, no time at all passed while he was in this beautiful place. And of course, we are an audience who's been here before, right? So we know that Hugh has crossed over into another world, uh, another realm, where time behaves differently. And Hugh eventually figures this out for himself. This is not drawn out in any way. And he begins to go there every day, and eventually even takes to camping there as he realizes that 
Since time doesn't seem to happen there, he can live a a double life. He can continue to meet his obligations to his mother and to his job, and also have his escape, his, his freedom. But this chapter ends with Hugh returning to this place to find that something has changed. Someone has posted a sign that says, Keep Out. So, that's Hugh Rogers, but he's not our only principal character, so let's meet Irene Panis now. Irene, or really Irina is what she goes by, is similarly disconnected from her world and also yearns for someplace better. She's about the same age as Hugh, but she has a city job and a car, and uh, she doesn't live with her family, though she does live with roommates, a romantic couple who are in the process of breaking up. We've probably all been in a bad roommate situation. I certainly have. But this specific situation sounds terrible. And of course, there's nothing Irina can do to stay out of the, the breakup. And the the man in this romantic couple even tries to play on her sympathies and and get her to sleep with him. And even though she doesn't fall for that trick, the woman in the romantic couple accuses her of doing it anyway, and there's no way to win that scenario. Uh, Arena just has to make a break. But this, this is really only the surface of her story. Arena also feels stuck and feels trapped. Her father died when she was a young child, and her other sibling, a, a brother, was still an infant. There's a a parallel here, obviously, with Hugh's mother, but Arena's mother remarried and had a brood of children with her new husband, and this guy is shiftless and does very little to provide for the family, but worse than that, he's physically abusive to Irina's mother, and as Irina becomes an adult, even tries to have sex with her. Irina has moved out precisely to escape this particular situation, but at the same time, She feels that she has to stay close in order to protect her mother and her younger half-siblings. Now, Irina, too, is connected to the other world that Hugh found, and indeed, she's actually been visiting this place for several years, and she knows much more about it than Hugh does, uh, and really more about it than Hugh ever will. And it is through Irina's story that we learn about this other world, so uh, we can turn our attention there now. Time is different here, as we've already encountered, and indeed, it's it's always twilight, though whether that's dawn or dusk is not clear, and in fact is something that's open to interpretation. And while Hugh experiences this other world as a serene wilderness, there are actually people here, and Irina knows them. She's known them for years, and even has an adoptive family here. There's a small town that she thinks of as Mountain Town, where People are shepherds, and they speak a strange but beautifully lyrical language that she has learned, though she's learned it imperfectly. The town has two leaders. One of these is Lord Horn, whom Irina thinks of as the aristocratic owner of this town, and she envisions here a sort of high medieval manorial system. And the other is Master Sark, who is perhaps the the mayor of the town, but also seems to function as a kind of lore master and, and may even have some religious function here. Now, the relationship between Lord Horn and Master Sark is not explained, it's not explored, and in some ways this is strange for Le Guin, who so often prioritizes social systems in her world-building, but this move really works for me in this story. For one, Arena isn't equipped to understand this herself because of the, the language and other cultural barriers, and we never leave the head of Hugh and Irina in this book, right? We never get in anything at all from the perspective of the people who live in this world. But also, 
This is something of a, a fairy story. In fact, these people may even be fairies for all we know. This world needs to be mysterious and strange and even a little dangerous for it to be a fairy story. And while this relationship, the, the political system, we could say, it's not explored, we, we see these people at work and we learn something of their lives, including how they deal with sleep and times of day in a world that is perpetually twilight. And all of this is just really excellent, really marvelous. This world is an escape for both Hugh and Irina, but while for Hugh it is an escape of seclusion, an escape from the clutches of his desperate mother, for Irina it's an escape from loneliness and the unwanted sexual advances of men. She has a family here, the, the couple who run the town's inn, but she also has a relationship with Master Sark, with whom she is in love, uh, but whom she does not think knows that. Uh, this love is not reciprocated. Uh, and Indeed, this love, too, is something of a fantasy, a daydream, and it's going to be shattered shortly. Naturally, Irina is protective of this world and her relationship with it. It's her world. She's the only one with access to it. And so when she sees Hugh's camping gear at the entrance, the, the beginning place, she posts that keep out sign. And their first encounter does not go well, but Hugh is determined not to lose this place himself. And they come to an arrangement. On top of this, the, the magical gate that leads here is behaving inconsistently. Hugh never has any trouble getting in, but he's actually starting to have some trouble getting back out. And the opposite is true for Irina. She can always leave, but getting back in has become increasingly difficult. There are other changes as well. The people of Mountain Town are now trapped there and isolated. And although we never see other communities in this world, Irina knows that they exist and that Mountain Town depends on trade to survive. They're a, a single commodity agricultural community. They need imports. They need trade uh, to meet their needs. But the road north that leads to those other communities is unpassable, and not because of a, a rock slide or, or some other natural obstacle. It's unpassable because of a mystical fear that causes any of the natives of this realm to collapse if they pass outside of the, the town limits. And this is not the first time this has happened either, and, and Master Sark seems to know what is going on, but he won't tell Irina what it is. Hugh eventually makes his way to Mountain Town, and Master Sark and Lord Horn believe that he is the solution to their problem, to this crippling fear. Irina is understandably upset that her specialness here has been upstaged by the arrival of Hugh, but the people of Mountain Town need her to translate for them, and... And in the meantime, even without speaking the language, Hugh has fallen in love with the daughter of Lord Horn, and this is how Irina comes to realize that Master Sark has romantic designs on that same daughter, though not out of love, but because he wants to become Lord when Lord Horn dies. And this really smashes the, the magic of this place for Irina. She had thought that she had found a place full of love and community, but it turns out that worldliness, greed, and ambition, and lust are present here too, after all. And this gets worse when Hugh is sent off on a heroic adventure to solve the problem, and Irina realizes that the people of Mountain Town knew this problem would come, and that they would need an outsider to solve it, and that they had been grooming her for this role, that the love that they had shown her was entirely self-interested and manipulative. 
But despite this feeling of betrayal, Irina decides to go with Hugh to help him. He, he doesn't know how to get to the top of the mountain where he has to do his heroism. He needs her help. And Hugh also doesn't know what that heroism will be, but they've sent him off with a sword and he's a, a genuinely ridiculous figure uh, carrying it around attached to his belt. As they reach the top of the mountain, they hear a horrible sound of some monster. And Hugh discovers here a, a giant rock with chains fixed to it, and he wonders what this is all about, and I'll have more on that later. But the two of them soon see the monster, which Irina comes to think of as a dragon, and Le Guin deploys some awesome weird fiction writing here when she describes this creature, so I'm going to read a passage of it. The cold breath sighed out of the cave, and from the cold dark, wakened, came the huge voice, the goblin howl. And the face that was no face, slit and eyeless, was lunging out, thrusting blind and white, groping down upon him. This monster is terrifying. It's hideously ugly, and it is big. But they succeed. Hugh slays the dragon. But Irina here is a, a, a huge help. She's more than just a guide. Uh, for one, Hugh wanted to go into the dragon's lair, this cave, but Arena was clever enough to draw the dragon out. Uh, and this, I think, is, is wrapped up with the change, so there will be more on this later. But more urgently, the dragon falls on Hugh and breaks his ribs, and Arena has to get him out from under it and then get them home. And much of the, the book, really a big chunk of this story, is devoted to their journey down the mountain. They don't ever return to Mountain Town, so they don't even really know if they've succeeded in helping the people there. But Hugh needs some serious medical attention, and so they have to get to the, the magical gate back to their world. And it is a difficult journey, bushwhacking through the wilderness. And I have to say that this section reads a lot like Sam and Frodo walking through Mordor, and I really loved it. And speaking of love... Along the way, Hugh and Irina fall in love with each other. And when they escape and Hugh is taken to the hospital, they make plans to live together and to be a romantic couple and to stay in the real world. They are not going to return to the, the other place, the other realm. And we are left here with the understanding that although there was some magic at work in bringing them to Mountain Town to defeat this dragon... The real magic is that these two lonely and frightened people have found a way to live in this world, in, in our world. They have found something beautiful here among all of the petty and vile ugliness of their lives. And I think this is a really beautiful, really magical ending to a gorgeously written book that I loved every page of. And now that we've reached the end, we can move into our themes and motifs segment. Now, this is a, a rich book with several overlapping themes, and, and one that I emphasized in the recap is escape and freedom. But in this section, I want to focus on two different themes. Uh, the, the first is time, and in part, I want to look at what Le Guin does here, because I've also just done The Memory of Whiteness by Ken Stanley Robinson, in which time is a, a central theme of the story. But in this book, Le Guin is not interested in the philosophy and physics of time the way that Robinson is. What she's interested in is how we interact with time, and she does this by contrasting our world with the twilight world. And we see early on that, that time is something that oppresses Hugh, that, that he's trapped by the rhythm of his mother's daily routine. She has precise daily habits, and she has demands for what Hugh should be doing during those times. And of course, he has shifts at work, and so Hugh really has no control over his own time. And really, we might even say that the freedom Hugh finds in the other world is a freedom from time, because the real world pauses for him while he's there, but also because there is no change in the other world. And, and there's a really wonderful, really beautiful passage in which Hugh expresses this. I'll, I'll read this to you. 
When he came to a third big creek, he stopped to have a swim, and after swimming, decided to call it a day. He liked the phrase. It was perfectly accurate. He could take any piece of time he liked and call it a day, another span and call it a night and sleep it through. He had never, he thought, sitting by the coals of his brushwood fire on the shore of the creek, experienced time before. He had let the clocks do it for him. Clocks were what kept things going there on the other side. Business hours, traffic lights, plane schedules, lovers' meetings, summit meetings, world wars. There was no carrying on without clocks. All the same, clock time had about the same relation to unclock time as a two-by-four or a box of toothpicks has to a fir tree. Here, there was no use asking what time is it, because there was nothing to answer for you. No sun saying noon, and no clock saying 7.38 and 42 seconds. You had to answer the question yourself, and the answer was now. This is a gorgeous passage, and it expresses the dream that we all have, to get rid of our stressors and our external demands, and just live in the now, to be in our present moment, to feel the world, to feel ourselves in the world. But there's a, a dark side to the physics, and, and really I should say metaphysics. There's a, a dark side to the metaphysics of the twilight world. Time is how we mark change. In, indeed, as we saw in the, the previous episode talking about the memory of whiteness, time is change. That's how we know it's happening. But the inhabitants of Mountaintown live in this perpetual twilight, and, and there doesn't seem to be weather, and it's not clear if there are seasons. We, we know that people are born and that they die, and the master seems to have access to historical records. But there is a, a sort of permanence to the, the structures and institutions of the community. And of course, this is something of a trope in fantasy novels. And while there's a, a certain peace that can come from this, there is also a loss of now when all nows are essentially the same. For Hugh, this is a real boon. This is something that works in his favor because he experiences this as a change. But this world is bereft of the type of natural change that we experience in our daily lives. And it, it seems to me that the dragon itself uh, is something like the price that people pay for this. We know that the dragon, or, or, or something akin to it anyway, appears sometimes, though not very often, and that it brings with it a, a crisis that has to be solved by outsiders. And I think we can see this as a, a metaphor for change imposing itself on this world that has otherwise escaped it. Thinking about the dragon can lead us into the second theme I want to talk about, which is genre expectations. And I think this is where the book really shines. The beginning place exists at the intersection of fairy tales and the hero's journey. You know, these are, are classic story genres that have existed for centuries and changed along with them. But they are also staples of the fantasy genre as a, a modern publishing category. The plot of the story really is a, a simplified, maybe we could say streamlined, hero's journey, and we can break that down. It begins with our hero, in this case it's Hugh, living his mundane life and then receiving a revelation. Early in the story, Hugh acquires mystical wisdom, both in the form of learning about the Twilight world through his own experiments and in learning about himself as he takes more and more decisive action for really the first time in his life. He gathers allies, in this case one ally in the form of Irina, who has special knowledge about this place and is instrumental in resolving the plot, and he receives the call to action from the townspeople, though he doesn't understand what the object of that action is or how to resolve the conflict. And Hugh even vacillates, though Irina does this even more so, and this is the classic resisting the call to action. And in the end, he accomplishes his task in large part because he's got this ally and because he has this newfound wisdom about himself. And 
that's a hero's journey. But Le Guin is playing with this. Le Guin defies our expectations, the expectations that we have for how this will work in a modern fantasy story. The story has three acts, as they so often do, but Le Guin plays with the breaks between these acts. In most of our hero's journeys, the, the call to action comes pretty early in the story. It's at the break between the first and second act, and we can look at Luke Skywalker here. There's the, the call to action in Ben Kenobi's hut, which he resists until he discovers that his family has been killed. And then he decides to answer the call, and, and that is the break between the first and second acts in Star Wars. After this, the hero encounters setbacks and obstacles, and overcoming one of these will typically be the break between Acts 2 and 3. But in the beginning place, the call to action only happens at the end of the book. It's the, the break between the second and third acts. In fact, we could almost say that the hero's journey takes place entirely in the third act. And this really defies our expectations, and I, I think it can make some readers uncomfortable, and we'll talk more about that in the next segment. But on top of this, Hugh and Irina never complete the journey, at, at least in some sense, because the hero's journey requires a, a return, but they decide not to go back to Mountain Town and receive their hero's welcome, and this also denies us the clear indication that they've actually accomplished the heroic task. We, we never see the result of slaying the dragon, and, and for all we know, that wasn't what the people wanted, and they've all died because Hugh and Irina left, though I don't actually think that's the, the case. Instead, the, the hero's return in this story is really their return to the, the real world and their decision to live in it, to let go of their obligations to people who won't even accept their help. And this happens because although we've gotten this hero's journey at the end, Le Guin has actually been telling us a fairy story the entire time. The classic fairy story is about a person crossing over into this magical realm and being changed by experiences there, and then returning to the real world to live out their days. Uh, that's what we find in the, the earliest expressions of this form in the Middle Ages, and it's what Le Guin gives us here. The hero's journey is only a story within this fairy story. It's the, the catalyst for the last stage of Hughes and Irina's change. It's the, the, the catalyst for their love. And so what happens to Mountain Town doesn't matter. And I don't see this as a failure or as a, a trick. I don't think Le Guin is trying to hide this from us. I think she wants us to be thinking about stories and how they affect our lives. There's a reason he wants to be a librarian. It's so we'll be thinking about books. And what we learn here is that we don't need to overcome obstacles in order to find ourselves so much as we need to step outside of ourselves to look at ourselves in order to, to do that. Ultimately, in the end, Le Guin playfully subverts the expectations of a fairy story by transforming the mystical experience of fairy into the perfectly mundane experience of meeting another person there, another person from our world, from the real world. It's about realizing that you aren't alone, that there are others like you. And I think this is a beautiful story for these characters. And if I haven't said it already, if you can't tell just from the, the way that I'm talking about this story, I loved the way that Le Guin played with genre expectations. And I think this is a great segue into our strengths and weaknesses segment. The characters, and I mean here Irina and Hugh, are also a real strength, though I won't say any more about them since I, I've done that really in the, the recap segment. So here, looking at strengths, I'm going to focus on the prose, which I think is probably the biggest strength of the beginning place. I've offered some examples already because I can't resist it, but I want to read two descriptive passages to give a sample of what I love most about this book. The first is a wilderness description, and I'm a real sucker for nature writing, as you will come to know. Now, here's what Le Guin writes. Here's how she describes the twilight world. The path turned and climbed and turned under the dark firs, under the rock faces. 
They went round a corner that jutted out over immense, dim, dropping forests and saw all the evening land beneath them darkening into the distant west. They did not pause, but went on, entering under trees, into leaf and branch, into the mountain, under rock. To the right, the walls of the summit buckled, overhanging. The trees among the scarred crags and boulders grew short and sere. There was rock underfoot now, and the path went level. I love the cadence and the rhythm of this description, but a big part of what I loved about this is simply that mountaineering is my primary hobby. I've spent a lot of days and nights out in the wilderness, and in this passage, this description, it just feels right to me. It feels true. The, the second passage that I want to read is also descriptive. Here it's a description of the master's hall. I, I suppose I'm also a sucker for a good room description, too. Le Guin writes, This was the center of it all, this high room. Facing the long wall of paneled oak were twelve high, leaded windows looking out upon the terraced garden. The sparse furniture was carved oak, the carpets of local weave, crimson, orange, and brown, warming the room even when the candles were not lit, and there was only the clear, constant twilight from the windows. In each end wall was a huge stone chimney-piece, and on each of these, high over the wide hearth and the mantel, hung a portrait. A stiff, melancholy lady stared with round black eyes down the length of the room at her lord, who concealed the hand of a crippled right arm inside his coat, and scowled blackly back at her. And I don't know about you, but I can feel myself in this room. When I read this, I, I feel like I am in this hall, even like I've been there before. It just comes alive for me. And it's this sort of feeling that I get in both these passages, and, and really throughout the book. And it's one of my primary values. It's one of the primary things that I go to speculative fiction for, is to feel what that world is like. And Le Guin is a master of this. It, it's just a magically written book. Now, I love this book as it is. I would not want to change a thing about it. But I will say that feels a bit like a cop-out, especially since I said the same thing about the memory of whiteness. So I'll address some weaknesses that other readers have pointed to. And I've come to understand that many readers regard this book as one of Le Guin's worst, uh, perhaps even her only bad book. And just glancing at reviews on Goodreads and Amazon, I, I saw two chief complaints. The, the first is that the writing is confusing. I strongly disagree with this, though I do understand where this claim comes from. The opening paragraph of the book is actually confusing. We jump right into the point of view of Hugh as he's working his cash register, and the, the machine that he's using and the, the nature of the commercial transactions are, well, they're, they're antiquated from the perspective of us now that we're living in the digital age. And I'll admit that it took me a second read of this paragraph in order to situate myself. But after this, the writing is all crystal clear. At the same time, it is rich, and it is thick, and therefore it is demanding. This is not a book you can skim. It is not a beach read. Every sentence is important, and there's very little dialogue, almost no moments of characters explaining the plot to each other, which is so often a, a staple of fantasy literature. For me, this is a feature of The Beginning Place, not a flaw, but if you're looking for light, accessible prose, I could see where this just won't work for you. The other criticism that I saw was that nothing much happens, and the, the world isn't fully developed. And this is certainly true, though I think I've already addressed how Le Guin is rather brilliantly playing with our genre expectations, how, again, this is a feature of the book. But I will agree that the, the world isn't developed the way that Le Guin is famous for doing, and, and that can certainly be disappointing. I, too, would like to know more about this world, uh, about the communities beyond Mountaintown, and I'd like to know about the relationship between this world and our own. Who else can come here? How long has this been going on? And, and, and so forth. But in the end, I, I still think this is a masterpiece, even if it doesn't deliver on this note. 
But I would love to know what you think about these critiques. What's your assessment of this book? Well, that brings my rather long review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and, and, and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the, the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And there's an unresolved element in this novel, something that I think is a, a real mystery, and I'd, I'd love to know what you think is going on. When Hugh and Irina reach the top of the mountain, Hugh wanders off by himself for a moment, and he finds a pair of chains on a, on a boulder. And, and Hugh never tells Irina about this. Indeed, he actively hides their existence from her. And my understanding of this is that Hugh doesn't necessarily have to slay the dragon. It may not even be the case that he's supposed to try. What he's supposed to do, or, or at least what he can do, is offer Irina as a sacrifice to the dragon, who will then leave the townspeople alone for a generation. But I'd, I'd love to know what you think about this detail. On top of that, there's this business with the cave. Uh, Irina stops Hugh from going into the cave, and the description of the cave from Hugh's perspective suggests that it is having a sort of Nazgul fear effect on him. And instead, Irina calls the dragon out of its cave, and Hugh is able to slay it. And here I wonder what would have happened if Hugh had gone into the cave. Would he have died? And would this have satiated the dragon? And I guess what I'm interested in here is that the metaphysics of the dragon and the fear that is choking Mountain Town. How does this other world work, I suppose, is the real big question. So come to the forum. Let me know what you think. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be reading We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I'm very excited for this book. And remember, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.